this man walks up to me and fanny pack. It's, it's my people. And he walks up and he's like, Sarah. I was like, hi, sir. He's like, do you remember me? I was like, oh yeah, you're, you're my patient. I'm like, heartache arrested. I was like, oh my gosh, you look so good. How are you doing? He goes, I'm doing great. Feel my pulse. And I was like, well, that's a weird thing to say, but sure, I'm just going to go with it. So I try to feel his pulse. You can't. I felt no pulse. I like could yeah. not palpate his pulse. And I was like, honestly, sir, I can't feel it right now. Are you feeling okay? He goes, that's because I don't have a pulse. Yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> he pulls up his shirt. Yeah. Shows me his like basically power cable oh coming out of his abdomen. Yes. Attached to his fanny pack, which has his heart mate too. there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories, bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. Joining me once again is my buddy, Christian Guzman, the nerdy Hi. nurse practitioner. The nerdy nurse practitioner. Glad to have you back again. Thank and you. this week, I'm extra excited because this is like your jam. <laughs> bom, bom, it's like bom, your favorite bom. thing to talk about. Okay. The last two episodes, we talked about heart failure. Right. The first one is like heart failure pathophys 101. You have yeah. to check it out if you haven't heard it already. Mm -hmm. The second one was heart failure medical management. So yes. all the chemicals we can put in people's veins to make their heart work better. Sure. But this episode, we're talking about the mechanical circulatory support. So what are the devices we can put inside people to support their heart yeah. to work better? All right. And Christian, this is your jam. So yeah. let's just back up a little bit. At what point do we decide it's time to use the big guns? We're going to use mechanical circulatory support. So on the last episode, I said, like, when we're going nowhere fast, when we're using the chemicals and it's not working, that's when we have to decide, okay, we're going to do something bold. We're going to go to the next level or at least transfer them to a place that can has the capability to do so. When that point is requires a lot of judgment. It does. Yeah. And there's two schools of thought on this. It's do you use these devices as a rescue maneuver or do you use these devices early on to prevent like overuse of catecholamines and of medications and stuff like that? As a general so, you're care of this patient, they're yeah. spiraling. You're like, it's time to use something. Yeah. What are our options? You just list out the options for cool. mechanical circulatory support. All right, ready? So the first thing that we can use is what's called an intraortic balloon pump. You could use what's called an impella or a temporary LVAD, left ventricular assist device. You could use what's called a Centromag, um, which is basically an external LVAD, which we can talk about. And then there's the big guns, which is VA ECMO which stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Okay. So we have options. We do. But like, how do we decide, 
okay, we're going to go with ECMO for this patient. Or like, we're going to go with a balloon pump or we're going to we're gonna send them to get an impella. Yeah. So everything is benefit versus risk, right? Benefit versus risk, benefit versus risk with every single thing. So number one, what these devices look like, where you put them in and how they function, you kind of have to understand how they function and how they go with the underlying pathology. So the first one, the, the one that's actually like probably the most common in places is the intraaortic balloon pump. So an intraaortic balloon pump, it, you access one of your femoral arteries, or you can even get one of your axillary arteries, right? You can access an artery and you put a catheter in your aorta right before the heart. And basically what it does is during systole, as the heart is leaving, there's a balloon that deflates. Real quick, say that again. During systole, as the blood is leaving. As the blood is leaving. Sorry, what did I say? As the heart is leaving. The heart, we don't want that. That's the sound, right? <laughs> if the heart's leaving, place the balloon pump. Place the balloon pump. The heart doesn't, the heart should not be leaving. That's okay, so starting it. You place, right. you place a catheter into the aorta. Into the aorta, right outside of the heart. And as the blood is leaving, right, the balloon is like deflated. So it's just like a little thin catheter. So that way blood goes around it. And then as the aortic valve closes and the ventricle is filling, the balloon on the outside is inflating. And the reason that makes a difference, the combination of the two is because during diastole, during ventricular filling, there's only one organ in the body that gets perfused and that is the coronaries. So what that does is the balloon's inflating. Let's say this is your aortic valve, like right here, and your balloon pump inflates, the area here in between the two is gonna get pushed into the coronary cusp, and it's gonna allow for the coronaries to get blood flow during diastole. So it's gonna augment that. So that's why they, for this patient, they put a balloon pump in. Yeah. And the reason they put- Remember, pause. If you are listening to this in your car driving, we get it. It's very hard to understand balloon pumps without seeing it. So if you're interested, you can check out the YouTube channel yes. later and see all of Christian's hand motions as he's making a balloon pump with his fingers to show you what it actually does. Not while driving. Yeah. Please not while driving. So basically, it's it's kind of like pushing blood in during that time, right? And then when it opens up again, the balloon deflates and it kind of creates like a little negative pressure. So it kind of helps drag more yeah. blood out. So That's the sound effect. Uh, the, sucks it out. And it actually cool. makes it when you put it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, Your but, going. <laughs> <laughs> but professor, what heart sound is that? <laughs> right. um, so, you know, basically that's that's what a balloon pump so does. So balloon pumps do two things. Yeah. They, whenever the balloon is inflated, it yeah. pushes blood back into the coronaries. To, so increase perfusion to the coronaries. Correct. Because they, they need that too. They need, yes. And then when it deflates, it sucks the blood. It reduces after, after load. load. And sucks the blood out yes. of the ventricle, which is weak and can't do it by and itself. It can't do it by itself. So it's crazy that a balloon, and honestly, if you guys haven't seen it, it kind of looks like one of those like balloon animal balloons. It's like a yeah. long, thin and you balloon wouldn't... that sits inside the aorta. It just inflates and deflates. And what do you know? It's great after load reduction and, and it's increasing... So... And it's, According to perfusion. It's so funny because you don't really like when you're in when you're in nursing school before I even saw one, like I kind of imagined something totally different. It's like very long and the balloon is basically like the whole entire catheter. Yeah. You really think about it. It's it's pretty cool. It's pretty neat. Yeah. That's the tried and true. That's the one that like everyone, a lot of, not everyone, a lot of people go to yeah, right a away. A lot of hospitals that don't have ECMO, they do have they the do, balloon pump. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The other kind of like the balloon pumps like sibling rivalry is the impella. So I like it better. 
I, but I understand there's <laughs> risk. There's risk and benefits. You have well, to kind of weigh out. Okay, so let's go back to the benefit versus risk of the balloon pump. So the balloon pump, you if you have an aortic valve that doesn't close, you don't want to put a balloon <laughs> pump in. And the reason you don't want to do that is because during diastole, if the aortic valve doesn't close, all the blood you're just pushing it back into the ventricle, which and, is already having a hard time. Which is already struggling. <laughs> okay. So you don't want to do that. All right. So yeah. we're, we're just we're gonna go no fam. Yeah. An impella is a little bit different. So an impella is kind of like, so if this is the ventricle, the impella goes through the aorta and it has, and it goes kind of, it stays in the aorta and it has a little thing in, it has an outlet inside the ventricle. And there's a lumen in the ventricle and there's a lumen outside in the aorta. And what it does is it decompresses the ventricle, takes it through the impella and then it dumps it out into the aorta. What does that do? It takes a bogged, dilated heart, and it kind of decompresses it a little bit. And it allows it to rest. Mm -hmm. And it kind of has direct laminar flow out in the aorta. So not only do you have whatever the heart is doing, you also have what the impella is doing. And the reason that that's neat is because you can put it in an incompetent aortic valve in select patients. Mm -hmm. Both of these, by the way, if you have an aortic dissection, you want to stay away from it because you could... Worse than the dissection. Don't want to do that. But basically, it kind of like will help decompress the ventricle. And a lot of times, going back, remember, if the ventricle is so bogged out and you're beyond that Frank Starling curve, the sarcomeres aren't grabbing onto each other. As you decompress it, you'll start to increase cardiac function and your cardiac output will increase. And that'll give you time to kind of like wean off of the impella. Now, Versus the balloon pump, which you basically tell the balloon pump when to inflate and when to deflate. Uh, the impella, basically, remember, it has a little rotor rooter. So what you're setting on this thing is how fast that rotor rooter is spinning. And the idea is the faster it spins, the more you're getting blood, the faster, the more blood you're getting from the ventricle into the aorta. So the higher, the faster, the more flow you'll get from the impella and the less that the heart is doing. If you go down on the speed, you have less decompression of the ventricle and the heart is working more. So- You gotta titrate it a little bit. So you gotta, it's kind of like a medication, except you're just kind of like messing with how fast that that's going. So it's, you have to treat the impella kind of like you treat a medication. Right. Basically, you go, you look at your hemo, go up, you go down, you look at the hemodynamics, you see what they do, or you get an echo. Like the other, so the other day, we had a, a patient that was on an impella and like their pulmonary artery pressures were high and they look at the echo and the left ventricle is empty and the right ventricle is super full. So we actually found out that we were decompressing the left ventricle too quick. We went down and it actually helped bring everything down. So it's interesting. You, cool. The point that I want to take, that I wanted everybody to get away from that is that it's kind of like a medication where you go down on the speed, you see how things go, see how the patient goes, you go up on the speed, see if it helps. Okay, so just to review the impella, it is a pretty thick catheter that Correct. goes into the heart itself. Yes. And then if the left ventricle can't squeeze effectively, get the blood out, it kind of like sucks it out of there. Yeah. A little tiny motor yeah. inside, motor, a uh, rotor, I guess, inside the motor. impella that like sucks the blood from the ventricle and just dumps it right back in, yes. almost like a detour, just yeah. dumps it into the aorta, it kind of does the work for it. I have also heard of right-sided impellas. Do you want to touch on that? Oh, okay. So, oh, do I want to touch on that? 
Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I want to offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I want to create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. So the same way that the, vent, the left ventricle needs help sometimes, a lot of times the right ventricle needs help. And a lot of times the right ventricle needs help because you have really bad pulmonary hypertension or because the vent, the left ventricle going back to the previous two podcasts is like so pooped out that it backs up onto the right and it pretty much causes so much work on the right that the right can't just can't keep up. So you do the medication, you do your cap, mm -hmm. right? You optimize the contractility of the right ventricle. You reduce the afterload by reducing the pulmonary artery pressures with diuresis or with inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, which is a whole nother thing. Episode. Yep. Another episode. And you reduce your preload or optimize your preload. But if that doesn't work, same thing. So they have a right-sided impella where you go through the venous side and you the impella goes into the left ventricle and outside into the pulmonary artery. So it's kind of a little different, right? Because instead of kind of like what an impella would look like on the left side, which is something like this, this actually looks like a pulmonary artery catheter in the sense that it goes through the, through the venous into the right atrium, into the right ventricle, mm -hmm. kind of like a swan into the pulmonary artery, but it does the same thing. That's a little bit more tricky because so about like 40% of the right ventricular function is based off of the geometry, roughly, 
right? Depending, it all depends on the pathology and so on and so forth. But the right ventricle really depends on its geometry. And if you do not have, if you decompress the left vent the right ventricle too much, or you don't do it enough, or whatever, it really has no reserve. So basically, you can... Basically, they're really finicky. They're very finicky. Yeah. The right ventricle is very finicky. So we have devices that can help to offload the weak ventricle. Mm -hmm. We have a balloon pump. We have an impella. Are there any other options yeah. for getting that blood out of the left ventricle who is failing? So like I said, the... Um, Impella is considered a temporary LVAD, left ventricular assist device. That's different than a balloon pump. I would say the next probably other thing that kind of falls into that category is a Centromag, which is kind of like an external LVAD where you basically have one cannula that goes, puts it into like an external machine and then puts it back into the heart. That I think gets a really confused sometimes with a permanent LVAD, right? So a permanent LVAD is a little bit different. It's the same principle, but a little bit different. This is external and a permanent LVAD. If somebody has chronic heart failure and you just, they're on medication therapy, it's not working out for them and you want to improve their quality, either A, improve their quality of life or B, get them to survive to a transplant, okay? Then what we do is called a permanent left ventricular assist device or permanent LVAD. So what happens is you, it's an operation, you put them on cardiopulmonary bypass and you get a device that connects directly into the left ventricle. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a graph. There's a graph that goes, that's connected to the pump and is into the aorta. And the same way that the impella gets blood from the ventricle mm -hmm. and then puts it into the aorta, instead of it being an external catheter that goes through the aortic valve, mm -hmm. the LVAD bypasses the aortic valve altogether. Okay. So it's going to pause you here. Yeah. So you can visualize. This is not just a catheter we inserted temporarily. Correct. They're literally coring out the apex of the heart. Yes. And attaching like a a bypass pipe system. A metal disc. <laughs> yeah. So think of a metal disc. Yeah, to like suck the blood out of the ventricle and then redistribute it up north into the aorta. It's probably the size of my palm. Yeah. So, Which is still kind of big. It's pretty inside big. Inside the chest. No, 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 right? no. no. <laughs> that, I think it's it's big in, inside the chest. Yeah. So it's really interesting because LVADs used to... <laughs> so LVADs, you had the heart rate one, heart rate two, heart rate three, you had the heart wear, which uh, they don't make anymore. Mm -hmm. But LVADs... They get I, smaller and smaller. <laughs> so cool. Well, and also the mechanism of the pump. So mm -hmm. like heart rate twos, which were really common, now they're kind of like phased out from heart rate threes. Harmate twos are axial pumps, which is similar to an impella. It's kind of like looks like this, and it turns and it turns and it circles and it circles and it propagates the blood forward. That's what the harmate twos used to do. Then they came up with the idea of a centrifugal pump, which is basically kind of like a disc that has blood going in and then blood going out. And inside that disc is like a weird rotation device that kind of the blood kind of goes in and it's suspended. There's like a blade that's suspended inside the disc that goes up and down and up and down based off the blood flowing. The reason they do that is because it kind of mimics a little bit of um, pulsatility. Like Sicily versus... Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. like if you look at the LVAD, like the Centromagnum, the Impella, and even this, your waveform on the A-line is going to look like V-fib. And the reason it does that is because you're basically just like kind of going and sucking it out and putting it in and it's constantly going. So there's no aortic valve opening, aortic valve closing. I mean, there is, but that's not the predominant flow if you're right. really dependent on it. 
So you don't have pulsatility on the A-line. It just looks like V-fib. I tell you a crazy story. Go. So I cared for a patient in the ER, uh-huh. cardiac arrest. Yeah. The guy recovered amazingly, mm-hmm. but had really severe heart failure. EF was like 5 to 10%, like really bad. Yeah. Okay. I, then I don't see him again. Years later, I'm at Boston Market, and this patient, the patient, this man walks up to me and fanny pack. So it's my people. And he walks up and he's like, Sarah. I was like, hi, sir. He's like, do you remember me? I was like, oh, yeah, you're, you're my patient. My cardiac arrested. He's like, I was like, oh, my gosh, you look so good. How are you doing? He goes, I'm doing great. Feel my pulse. And I was like, well, that's a weird uh, thing to say, but sure, I'm just going to go with it. So I try to feel his pulse. You can't. I felt no pulse. I like could yeah. not palpate his pulse. And I was like, honestly, sir, I can't feel it right now. Are you still not going? He goes, that's because I don't have a pulse. Yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> he pulls up his shirt. Yeah. Like right there in Boston Market. Pulls up his shirt. Shows me his like basically power cable oh coming out of his gosh. abdomen. Yes. Attached to his fanny pack, which has his heart mate too. It's so funny. So this was like... I don't know, 13 years ago, where LVADs were not quite as uh, common. common or well-known as they are yeah. today. And honestly, I had never heard of one. I was an ER nurse only, never worked CVICU. And so I was this like, was before your stent in the CVICU? Oh, yes. This okay. is actually what drew me to CVICU. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. So he's like, feel my pulse. I, has no pulse. Pulls up his shirt, shows everyone his belly, and his power, literally a power cable coming out of his abdomen to the battery pack in his fanny pack. Yeah. And he explains to me, I have an LVAD. It pumps my heart for me because my heart kind of died after I went to cardiac arrest. Like, it doesn't squeeze very well. So I'm just having this thing until I can have a transplant. So yeah, that's when I was like, wait, hold on. Where did they do this? I'm going to go to the place, the places, the LVADs. And that's when I went to work, CVIC. Yeah. So it's really interesting that you say that because like, even when you say that, it's more common. So first of all, let's go to like power cable. So when you do an Impella, there is a box. Oh, yeah. That you have externally that's connected to this catheter that's in your groin or in your axillary. And you have a dial on this computer machine and you're going up, down, up, down, looking at all the waveforms, whatever. If you're going to put that in something, people can't go home with that. Right. (laughs) So that's implanted in your heart. So they actually make a site and like they tunnel a power cable that goes into a box out of your belly, right, mostly. And it kind of connects the batteries and stuff like that. And it's, batteries or the wall. Like at nighttime, you plug yourself yeah. into the oh, wall yes. outlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And then and during it's the so, day, you have battery packs. Dude, it's so funny because these patients are like, that's their lifeline, right? If that thing dies, they have they have nothing. They are they a cardiogenic shock. They yeah. are a heart failure patient. So it's really cool because those patients are like so knowledgeable about the LVAD and like all this sort of stuff. Now, when you say that it's more common now, so the indication before was like, you only got an LVAD if you're a candidate for transplant. So if you said, no, I don't want a transplant, you didn't get an LVAD. So those were a bridge to transplant. Now there's destination therapy. Yeah. Destination therapy is basically like, okay, cool. We know how to put these things in now. And actually patients do well. You give somebody another five to 10 years, right? With like an EF of 5%, 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're... If you're going and you're doing that and, and you know, you're not functional and you're on a milrinone drip because people go home with like pick lines and milrinone and all those sorts of inotropes and stuff, you know, maybe an LVAD, you don't want to transplant. Let's say you're 65 years old. You're not a candidate for a transplant, but you could be potentially a candidate for an LVAD and you live a very functional life. I mean, I know people who have LVADs that like in my practice, in my post ICU practice, I've seen them with LVADs and they, you know, had cellulitis. They went to the hospital, they went to a rehab. Now they're back and they're like walking, they're going grocery shopping, they're playing with their grandkids. Okay, is it the best? No, it's not the best, but it's better than 
being attached to milrinone and, you know, it's it's difficult. My favorite patient population is LVAD patients. Yeah, the physiology is fascinating. The physiology is cool. So yeah. like my nerdy side loves it. I also, these patients had such poor quality of life prior to their LVAD. Like oh my they gosh, were so yeah. tired and so weak. And now they're like and a And then new once they recover, they're like back to being a grandparent and running around and going fishing and, and all the things that they love to do. Yeah. They're so grateful. And they don't give LVADs to just anybody. You have to be able have to, to be manage a candidate, such a challenging right. device yeah. at home. And so these patients are very compliant. They take their medications. They charge the batteries. Like they have to be responsible enough to actually handle an LVAD. And it's so funny because like the biggest complication from, so I would say the biggest complication from even a temporary LVAD or a permanent LVAD is the fact that a lot of times you decompress the ventricles so good. That's the right side, yeah. right? So again, this is the heart. Here's the left ventricle, right? If you decompress this so much, a lot of times the right side can't keep up mm -hmm. and you start going into right-sided heart failure. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, those patients need to know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Also, you need volume. If you're dehydrated, the VADs, if you're like bleeding, if you're septic, right, in the ICU part or in the floor part, mm -hmm. if you're getting dehydrated or in the outpatient part, if those patients are dehydrated, they don't have volume in there, right, because they're on a fluid restriction. The VAD will just completely like decompress. So like imagine here's the ventricle, here's the VAD. If it suctions out, it compresses the inlet portion and it'll kind of like stop allow the ventricle to fill and it'll keep doing that. That's what's called a suction event. Yeah. So the LVAD won't work properly. So those patients need to know, do, what, am, I, am I having a suction event? Am I drinking enough water? X, Y, and Z. Okay. Yeah, love LVADs. Okay, so balloon pump, Impella, Centromab, maybe a permanent LVAD. Maybe a permanent LVAD. Like you said, it used to be like we're moving towards transplant, but some patients just choose it as their destination. Yeah. Like this is, sure. the, this is the end goal. I will have this LVAD with me the rest of my life. I actually... I would make patients name their LVAD. Like, what's her name? Oh, that's what's so funny. <laughs> because this is your buddy the rest of their life. Like, yeah. you're sleeping with it. You're showering with it. You're yeah. going on vacations with it. You are with this LVAD. So this go ahead it. and name it. Yeah, right. Patients got a kick out of that. But they'd be like, oh, yeah, I got to plug in Betty. Oh, I got to plug in John. Whatever <laughs> they named it. Because some of them, they'd have it for life. Well, and it's their lifeline, right? right? It's they have right. to take care of it. Okay, so that's LVAD over a permanent thing. But that's never like a... Is. Huh? Here it is. It's You're coming. So right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what about patients that like they're crashing? We've tried all the things. We have to rescue them right now. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite thing to save a patient's life with? No, I think that's it. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so then there's ECMO. So ECMO, ECMO is interesting. I find ECMO to be very interesting. I think I could easily give a two-hour talk on ECMO. We're not doing that today. And we're not Christian, doing that today. Sorry. No, please. You're good. I think your listeners have had enough of me. <laughs> but so basically ECMO is a machine. It's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So ECMO is, there's different configurations, but I want to break it down into machine and cannula. Okay. So what the machine of ECMO does is it gets blood puts it through an oxygenator and and in the oxygenator has a chamber for what's called sweep gas. And the oxygenator will give you oxygen and the sweep gas will take away carbon dioxide. So basically this pump will take away the carbon dioxide and give you oxygen. What the lungs do. What the lungs do. Mm -hmm. So what the ECMO supports, lungs versus heart versus both, depends on where you take the blood from and where you put it back. 
that's kind of like what's going to determine what you're supporting. So if we're going to talk about cardiogenic shock, there's VA ECMO. That's going to be your basic configuration for cardiogenic shock specifically. Right. So okay? if we just need to support the lungs, we do VV ECMO. Correct. But if we have a heart that's not functioning, then we're going to go to VA ECMO. And if both of them don't work, there's VAV ECMO, which is... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so VA ECMO gets blood from the venous side. And so you have a cannula that's draining from your venous side before the right heart, before blood enters the right heart. And then you put another catheter, on another cannula, after the blood's gone through the machine, the outflow cannula, you're going to put it into the arterial side. So you could put it either in your femoral artery, you could put it in your axillary artery, or you could do what's called central cannulation, where pretty much a person has an open chest and it's directly into the aorta. Okay. So number one, why are, why are we doing this? This is somebody whose heart, you're on inotropes, you're on all these things, you're potentially on other modes of support like balloon pump or impella or Centromac, and it's just not working. So you need bigger cannulas that can provide more flow and more support. And that's what ECMO can do. Okay, so the candidates are going to be bridge to recovery, bridge to transplant, or even bridge to decision. Okay, bridge to decision isn't as common. And so bridge to recovery is pretty much, okay, your heart's had this event. Right. And it needs to recover. So like if that's going to happen, we need to rest it completely and take away the workload from the heart and hopefully it'll regain function. That's after like an MI or after cardiac arrest or even like if you have valvular disorders like mitral right. regurgitation. We can fix it and then maybe the heart Correct. gets Correct. Yeah, you go, you bypass the heart, you buy them time. Right. You buy them time. So that's bridge to recovery. Bridge to transplant is like, okay, your heart's not coming back. Right. That's like if this patient would, so she's 60 we would have, if the balloon pump didn't work, if the inotrope didn't work, she would have had to go to ECMO yeah. if it wasn't working out and hopefully list her for a transplant and see if she's even a candidate for a transplant. So that's, that's another indication. Bridge the decision is, well, I don't know if I want to have the surgery for whatever to fix the heart. I don't know if you're going to be a transplant candidate. I just don't know. We don't have a decision, but you're dying right now in front of me. So I'm going to put you on ECMO. And in all likelihood, we may have to withdraw care on you. But let's let's see what's going on. Let's put you on this thing. Let's buy you some time. Let's buy us some time and go from there. And that's bridge to decision. A lot of people are not a fan of that because it's very hard. There are people on VA ECMO that are extubated, talking to you, ambulating. eating, yeah. ambulating, moving, walking. And basically, if they are not a heart transplant candidate, if they're never going to recover, what do you do? It's hard. You live out your life in the ICU, you know? There's no home ECMO. There's no home ECMO. I want to say too, like it sounds like lacking compassion, but ECMO is high resource, right? Like you need a nurse caring for the patient and someone that's running the ECMO pump, right? This is a, oh. this is a lot going on. Well, and there's lots of risk with ECMO. They get yeah. strokes. They have both clot and bleed. <laughs> like they, there's so many things that go wrong with ECMO. So it's not just like, oh man, every patient who comes in in cardiac arrest, we should just ECMO them. Yeah, no. Because like, what is the end result? Like well, you said, you have a patient so let's, stuck on ECMO. So you have forever. a patient, number one, you have a patient stuck on ECMO. You don't know what they're going to do with it. So now you have to figure that out. And that causes moral distress for the family. That puts the- And the staff. And the staff. 
and the patient. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the patient. Of the course. patient is like, could be awake and talking to you. And you're just like, now you have to, like, you're kind of planning your own death. It's really, it's a strange place. It's a hard place to put somebody in. Yeah. You're exposing them to bleeding because they have to be on anticoagulation. You're exposing them to stroke because remember, as you're putting blood back into the body, so let's say like, I don't even know how to do this, but- Words only, Christian. Words, words only. only. <laughs> so you have anti-grade flow normally, right. right? So if you put somebody on ECMO, you're going to have retrograde flow, meaning it's not going to go the natural way from the heart out to the rest of the body. It's going the opposite way. So your risk of like showering and of like calcifications, the risk of dissection, the risk of GI bleeds, all this sort of stuff, it's very risky. You're potentially prolonging the suffering with zero benefit. So this is not a benign procedure. You've utilized these resources and you've exposed the patient to so many risks and have done all of these invasive procedures to put them in a situation he or she never would have wanted to be in. Yeah. So those are all things that you got to think about. So it's kind of hard. And that's why it takes a lot of clinical judgment and takes a multidisciplinary team to really think, sure. okay, we're going to put somebody on ECMO. Sure. But when it does work... It's great. It's the coolest thing ever. You know, that the 50-year-old that has a random heart attack okay. at the gym so, and then their heart is stunned, but we know it's recoverable. So yeah. I've had a patient that had a TAVR that went into a TAVR is a transcatheter aortic valve. It's a high-risk surgical patient, but he went to cardiogenic shock after. So we put him on ECMO. And in four or five days, he got decannulated. He left. He went somewhere else. Four or five days? Yeah. That's a pretty good turnaround. It's time, a pretty Christian. good turnaround. Well, go for much longer than that. So the idea is ECMO's there to buy you time to support the organs. So that way you can fix the underlying issue and optimize the treatment. Right. right? So at that point, yeah, he was on pressors. He gave him 24 hours. He cooled off. Then we were starting to come down on the intros. Then we were coming down on the pressors. Then we're going in. We're getting him off of fluid. Three or four days later, his heart, you start to notice, again, the same thing with an LVAD. ECMO is laminar flow. So your A-line waveform looks like V-fib. Well, now when your heart's recovering and it's pumping more, you start to see little pulsation, then more pulsation. And you're like, oh, I can come down off the ECMO now right? Because the heart's doing more. Awesome. So when it works, it's a it's a great tool. And I mean, we've taken care, care of patients together in the CVICU. It's like you have somebody who had a cardiac arrest and we put them on ECMO and three or four, six, seven days later for VA ECMO, they come off. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, so as we wrap it up, Christian, yes. what would you say are like your main takeaways? Like what do you want people to know about mechanical, mechanical circulatory support? Pros, cons, pearls, all the things. I would say um, my takeaway for specifically mechanical circulatory support is not everyone is a candidate. And I don't think it's fair to ourselves to burden ourselves to think, would this patient have been an ECMO candidate, an LVAD candidate or not? You know, this is a multidisciplinary team that discusses this. These things have protocols that are developed by nurse practitioners, PAs, respiratory therapists, nurses, case managers, surgeons, cardiologists. So, you know, if someone is not a good ECMO candidate or a mechanical circulatory support candidate, there's more than just like support the pump now. We have to really think of the global picture. 
I think the biggest thing is don't burden yourself. Not everyone is a candidate. It has to be the right patient, the right diagnosis, and the right overall trajectory. So, you know, not everyone's going to be a candidate for this. And, you know, don't don't burden yourself with, oh, man, in hindsight, should I have done this for this patient? This is something that's relatively novel, right? right? I always say that's the main takeaway is that this has to be the right patient, right diagnosis, right time. There is also such thing as like too late, right? Yeah. But it happens. Yeah. That's good. I mean, I struggle with that too, especially with COVID when resources were more thin. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was more VVF at the time, but you're like, oh, this patient, they might actually survive with, with ECMO, but like literally there's no there's no ECMO machines in our hospital Whoa. or like there's no hospitals that are accepting ECMO patients because resource, I think seriously, we, we face COVID, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, that's really good wisdom is not to not to carry that burden of what if. No, or, you um, can't. It's interdisciplinary. It's it's resource dependent. I mean, there's so many factors. Yeah. Even the patient themselves, like some patients just are not candidates for because of their labs, because of their history, because of their anatomy. I also think in a time that we're focusing so much and we're seeing so much burnout, we're seeing so much moral distress and we're becoming more aware of these things. You know, I think that's really important to highlight that these things, not everyone's a candidate. It takes up so many resources and you have to be judicious with these resources. So I, that's probably the main takeaway. Good. Can I have a takeaway for the cardiogenic shock? Yes. <laughs> I think the main takeaway, I think I've, I've kind of said this on most of my episodes I've done with you, is the importance of nursing knowledge and nursing confidence to recognize when you're in that stage B wrapping it up all the way, that stage B cardiogenic shock, right? Mm -hmm. Where the patient's starting is the beginning and going from B to C, that classical, that ability for the nurse, that's the main takeaway is, you know, become comfortable with these things and, and expand your knowledge base. You know, after one year of nursing, you're just becoming comfortable to learn. Right. Going and using this knowledge base and becoming comfortable with it takes time but once you have it, man, can you make a difference in a patient's life? Like nursing care is key. So I encourage all nurses, allow yourself the time in the room to lay a fertile ground for knowledge to grow and then be confident with that knowledge. That's good. Amen, Christian. Ah. All right. Once again, another great right. episode. Thank you so much for dropping Thank some you. knowledge. Thank you. Bye, guys. This is so much fun. Bye. Bye. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com 
or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.